as I mentioned, the text that we read this morning is certainly one of my favorite stories of the Old Testament, but it can be a little puzzling if you're not familiar, and there are plenty of things in happening, uh, happening in this story that you don't see in a lot of the other Old, Test- Old Testament narratives um, there in, you know, here in this, in this particular one. Once again, in, in our text, very clearly, there's this conflict between Israel and one of its, one of its neighbors, one of the foreign nations, and that's pretty standard fare for the Old Testament. But this particular conflict, uh, well, unlike others, this one plays out under very clear and explicit, uh, or sorry, explicit supernatural influence. Uh, there's a very strong dose of the spiritual and the supernatural in this particular story. Um, you see a warfare uh, that is conducted, and Elisha, the prophet of God, is wielding the miraculous and the, and the powerful in ways many others do not throughout the Old Testament. In the story, I'm not sure if you caught it, we have the very armies of the living God, the armies of heaven, participating in, in some extent in the conflicts of Israel. And we see the sign-working prophet Elisha there doing his work. It's one of my favorites. It's, it's really fascinating. Hopefully it has a lot of implications for our lives today and how we understand the nature of our lives and our warfare. Um, but there is a lot to unpack here, a lot to explain, and hopefully to, to dissect regarding this story. So we're going to just dive right into it and cover this story under three headings like we, like we try to do most of the time. And um, so the first heading for this morning as we unpack the story is point number one, um, the short-sighted schemes of Syria, the short-sighted schemes of Syria. The text this morning, I know we're just dropping, dropping in for this particular Sunday in, in 2 Kings. This is a story of the people of Israel, um, in particular the northern kingdom of Israel, and this is a time during the divided kingdom. So this, so this is well after David, this is well after Solomon, this is during the time when the north and south have split. And, and um, Israel, which is to the north, or the area of Samaria that comes up, that is, that is where this, this story is taking place. So this is north of Judah. Um, this, this story does come very early in 2 Kings, as we saw, and this is, this is during the life, once again, of the prophet, uh, a prophet uh, Elisha. And for Elisha, this is one of several conflicts between Israel and Syria that plays out over these chapters. So if you get a chance to go back and read it, you can see before and after there's lots of interactions between, between Syria and, and Elisha taking place. Um, if, if you still don't have your bearings of when this is, you might recall um, there was a man by the name of Naaman who, who had leprosy, and then Elisha instructed him to bathe uh, in the, I believe it was the Jordan River, and then, he, and then his, he was cleansed of his leprosy. That was a Syrian. That was around the time of these conflicts between Israel and Syria. That's the general time, uh, time frame. Well, as we saw, this text opens with the, with the king of Syria making war against, against Israel. Now, he's already encroached upon Israel's borders. If, if, if um, the northern tribes, what we're thinking, Syria is even to the north of, of that. And so the king has moved south for us, and he's already started to encroach upon the territory. As we as we begun the story, he this king he's um, he's taking counsel with his servants and he's trying to figure out and try to plan where to send his army next, where to send his army to camp 
we're told, so that they can be in the best position possible to strike against Israel's king and to, um, and to make war against him. But the problem this king of Syria is having is that every time he makes a plan with his generals, uh, his plans are foiled, that somehow uh, the king of Israel keeps slipping through their hands. He keeps moving. It's, it's almost as if the Israelites and their king know what the Syrians are planning. They're a few steps ahead. And it tells us there that this has happened more than once or twice. So this keeps, this keeps happening to the poor Syrian king. Now it gets to the point where the Syrian king, he catches on. And so if, if it seems as though someone is tipping off the other, you know, Israel, well, naturally, his inclination is to think, okay, what, I have a spy in my midst. There must be someone uh, here amongst my people and my servants that, that is spying and that is telling Israel. And that's what he assumes is happening. Um, this is greatly troubling, it says to him. And so he calls his servants together trying to find out the traitor, uh, trying to expose the traitor in their midst. But when he does gather all of his servants, the true nature of the problem is made apparent. It's not as though the Syrians have a, have a traitor, but there's this guy, there's this prophet um, that, that they name Elisha. That they name is Elijah. This prophet of, of Israel, he keeps telling the king of Israel where the Syrians are going to camp. And so every time they make their battle plans, Elisha becomes aware. He tells Israel's king, and then they keep moving and, and avoiding being uh, or battle. This prophet is the one who's referred to as the man of God over and over. So when it, in, those, in those first few sections, when it says the man of God, the man of God, that's, that's speaking of, of Elisha. Um, this is the same Elisha that the king is aware of already because, once again, of, of Naaman. And he's the one who's discerning these, uh, these attacks. And you have to love the way that the servants describe Elisha's power here in the very beginning of the story. It says that, or they say that Elisha, he tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. This is that he's spying on the very words that you're saying in, your, in the privacy of your home and in your bedroom. Can you imagine that? Someone listening, listening in to your most private and intimate conversations in your bedroom. Well, this certainly might have been a strange thing to people in previous generations. I think for us, um, I'm sure many of you have felt or had that feeling that, that you are being listened to on the time, particularly by our, uh, by our technology. I know every, I'm sure everyone here has experienced it. That time when you start talking about something, and the next thing you know, what do you see next time you go online? You see an ad for that very thing you were talking about. They are listening to you, um, absolutely, in your bedroom. But the point is, this is happening to the king of Syria, and he's got no iPhone to blame it on. He does not know what is happening. Um, Elisha's miraculous ability, we see, to know the plans of the king, well, that's, that's pretty consistent with Elisha's ministry. I, as I mentioned, there's not a lot of miraculous that happens through the large uh, or through the expansive history of the people of Israel. But there are two prophets, back-to-back, Elijah and Elisha, who, have a heavy, or, 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 who minister with a heavy dose of the miraculous. But there are a lot of signs, wonders, and miracles that take place under the ministry of these two prophets. I mean, think of Elisha alone. He raises the Shunammite woman's son 
So he raises a child from the dead. Um, Elijah did as well, but Elisha also is able to make poisonous stew suitable to eat in one story. In another story, Elisha is able to multiply bread um, to feed the masses, which is a story that we might have heard before. But Elisha also has a bit of an edge to him. He also does some other weird things that's hard to pin down. Like there's this one story where there was this one time where there was a group of, of boys who tease him because he's bald. And do you guys remember what he does? He curses them in the name of the Lord, and then a pair of bears come out from down the hills, and they maul the boys to death. Um, so he's, he's got some power. But of course, most famously, I think he is dealing with, with, with Naaman. Once again, he cures him of, of leprosy. So it's this same Elisha. And so the king, returning to him and returning to our story, knowing that Elisha can hear him, that Elisha can, can discern his plans, he comes up with a bright idea, uh, as if Elisha's not going to know about this next great, great plot, is that he schemes and he plans to go and capture Elisha himself. That's his, that's his genius plan to get rid of this problem. And so he makes these plans to go and seize the prophet. Um, now, what's fascinating about this, about this conflict that's, that's set up is that you have this great worldly power, this great earthly power, the king of Syria, making war against God's people, and in particular now having a beef with God's prophet. But to do warfare, this worldly king, he, well, the only thing he can do, the only thing that he can use is his worldly strength. That he resolves to send, in verse 14, his horses, his chariots, this great army, he says. It's kind of excessive. He sends his great army in the in the secret of night, to go after one man, God's prophet, Elisha, using all the strength that he has available to him. That is his, his short-sighted plan. Well, the second thing I want us to see as the story continues um, is point number two, eyes that are opened and blinded. Eyes that are open and blinded. The Syrian horses and these chariots, this great army, goes at night, and they surround the city of Dothan, which is where Elisha is, is sleeping in the middle of the night. And in verse 14, the story picks up with a servant of Elisha, uh, this, this young man rising early and looking out the window, and what does he see? He sees this great army amass outside of the city. And he responds exactly as you would expect uh, any natural person to respond. I mean, he fears, he, he despairs, he's in full-on panic, full of fear. He sees the strength and the might uh, of, this, of this great king, the power of the world, and, and he's not sure what to do. Oddly enough, our man Elisha, not unlike Christ, just sleeping in the middle of the storm, he's sound asleep. He, the, the young man has to go wake him up. And to find out what to do. And Elisha's reaction um, proves that he's not worried one bit. I mean, not only has he likely seen this attack coming, but he remains confident and firm. He's just largely, un, he's largely unbothered. Um, he tells his servant, no, don't fear, do not fear. And he grounds that assurance in a very odd statement. He says that those who are with us are more than those who are with them which is a bizarre thing to say. 
because it's just Elisha and this, and this servant. They have, no, they have no strength. There's not even uh, many people that are with him. I mean, Dothan was a relatively small town. Um, at face value, the, the facts are wrong. Elisha's not, not accurate if you consider things naturally. But, but of course, uh, as we see, uh, Elisha... Um, He's well aware of spiritual realities that the, that the young servant is only beginning to waken up to. The servant's fears are, are well-founded. Um, the, the light of the morning has revealed this terrible foreign army. But Elisha then prays something also odd. He says, Why don't you, or he asks God, would you please just open the eyes of this young servant so that he can see the truth of the situation? And it says in verse 17, Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. The Lord answers that prayer. And the Lord opens the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, what does he see? He says the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So what Elisha knew and what, and what Elisha can see, now this servant is made aware of as well that the hosts of heaven, the hosts of the Lord God Almighty, are there at the site of the battle as well. And they too have a great army, and they have, and they have chariots, they have great strength, and yet that strength uh, appears as though it's consumed by fire. It says that they are powerful. That if these two camps were to do battle, there would be no competition. That the armies of the Lord would undoubtedly just, just decimate and wipe out the armies of the king of Syria. I mean, you can't help but think of, of now, the, now the movie is not the book because the movie for the return of the king sees, sees the, the armies of the hosts of the dead actually go all the way to Minas Tirith and just wipe out, wipe out the orc army. But that type of imagery, uh, that idea of, of, some, of some unseen spiritual host of great strength and power that will undoubtedly overwhelm the natural enemies, that is absolutely um, what we should think about if these two armies were to do battle. The small town of Dothan is not defenseless against the Syrians at all, but this great army of the Lord, their God, is there to preserve them and protect them. And it is for that reason that Elisha can sleep through um, the night and not be disturbed and worried at all. The servants, oh, the, this servant is finally able to see in this story, like Elisha has been accustomed to um, since early on in, in his ministry. The servant has his eyes open to the to true reality and to the true uh, nature of the entire created order. That as the Bible has told us from the beginning, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And according to our natural sight, our natural eyes, as creatures made of the dust, all we can see naturally is that realm of the earth. All we as, as humans can sense by our senses is, um, is the earth, or are those things of the earth. But according to the testimony of the word, there is a, there is a, um, a whole different created order, a, an entirely separate created uh, realm that is just beyond our sight. This is the realm of heaven. This is the realm of the spirit. 
This is the same thing that the Apostle Paul or, others in the, or other writers in the New Testament will call those things which are not seen. When you hear that in the New Testament, it's describing there are things that are seen, that is, things in accordance with, with the created order of the earth, and there are those things which are not seen. Um, they're, not, they're not invisible as though they're transparent. They're just, we, we just can't perceive them, so they are not, they are not seen, and that is, um, that is the realm of the Spirit, the realm of the place of heaven, and where this angelic host, this army, uh, finds themselves. The eyes to see that place and to see those things is what Elisha prayed for early in his ministry, and it is part of the reason why he performed so many miracles and so many wonders throughout his, his lifetime. When, uh, when, uh, because he, so Elisha, just a little bit of, little bit of background, he was, he was the successor to Elijah, and when Elijah was set to depart, Elisha asked for this double portion of anointing, and he receives it in this capacity to see heavenly things. The sight that Elisha possesses is, you know, is, is profound, and it is granted to this servant um, to show him that the power and strength of God, the God that they follow, is more than adequate um, to thwart the foolish schemes of the king of Syria. The king of Syria thought that he was moving uh, cunningly. He sends his army in the middle of the night uh, once again. He sends all of his strength. But not only is Elisha aware to the threat, he is privy also to the way in which God is going to protect him and to not allow the schemes of the, of the world overwhelm him. The God has provided an army of his own upon, or, or like fire upon the mountains, and he is employed, he's uh, his heavenly agents to prevent their destruction. The very idea of like guardian angels in part is taken from from, from this type of story. And really, I think for us as we read this and as we engage it, it should provide us just another bit of evidence for the spiritual realities that are at work um, and remind us also that the nature of our warfare is one that is truly spiritual, that, that there are more things going on um, behind the scenes or in that place which cannot be seen that we have to have faith to remember are always at work. Not just powers and forces out uh, for our destruction, but there are also powers um, for our good and for our protection. Well, as these two armies are there at the scene, you would assume and you would think that this would set the stage for a great conflict, this great battle, a great war. And of course, as we read, though, that does not, that does not happen. Um, instead, the prophet does take action, and, and things go in a slightly unexpected direction. We're told in verse 18, it says that Elisha prays to the Lord. It says, or he prays, please, strike these people with blindness. And the Lord answers. He does strike them with blindness, according to the prayer of Elisha. Um, now, just to be clear, it's a little unclear. Oh, it's, it's be a little unclear. Um, it's a little unclear... Uh, what type of blindness this is exactly, because the people can still, in one sense, see naturally. Like, they're able to follow Elisha. He's going to lead them back to, back to the capital, back up to, uh, to Samaria, to the king. Um, so there's a sense in which they can still see, they can still operate, they can follow, they can follow. But what they can't see is, is they can't see who Elisha is. 
Um, they don't know who he is. They can't, they can't discern that he, is, that he is, in fact, the man uh, that, they, that they sought out or that they sought to kill. So here's what happens. Um, Elisha plays that they'd be blinded, and then he tells them, hey, I know the guy you're looking for. He's over here. Follow me. And then they foolishly just follow him, uh, expecting that he's going to lead them to, to the man that they sought, that they sought to kill. Um, it's quite a comedic turn of events for the story. He had this, this great army in all their strength, fooled by this man um, who appeals to the God of um, or to the God of the people of Israel to thwart, to thwart their plans. And so what it reveals to us is that the nature of our conflict, that while we are uh, commanded and instructed to have faith, to, to trust uh, in God and, and, uh, and, and the spiritual nature of, and to believe the spiritual nature of our conflict with the world, you have the world in all their strength, fumbling and bumbling in foolishness and in blindness. Um, completely, as we'll see, completely thwarted in their efforts to destroy God's people, um, even as they seek to flex their great strength and their power. We have an evil king, and we have his naive servants that are blind to the true spiritual realities that are at work. And really, that is the same state of things as it, as it turns out today, that, the, we, that we live in, live in a world that is utterly apart or that is utterly blind um, to the true spiritual realities that have been revealed to us in the scriptures. And, be, and it's because of that that they are dead set against, um, against Christ and against his kingdom. That we engage in a spiritual warfare with people and with the, and with the world system and forces that are incapable of any spiritual good. And yet, like that servant, we take no credit on our own for having our eyes opened. But it takes the mighty work of God to move by the power of his spirit, to open up our eyes, and to make us aware and awake of the true situation. As Christ describes the situation in Matthew 13, he says, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will, indeed, you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal him, or heal them. This story uh, of a true and serious conflict between two power, again, uh, between two earthly powers um, that is yet simultaneously a story of the spiritual conflict that has taken place even now um, is truly the story of life, of, uh, of true life on this earth. And for us, once again, like them, um, or for, for us like it is with, with the servant, uh, God is kind and gracious and eager uh, to open up our eyes and to open up our ears that we may not just perceive, uh, but trust him rightly. And that is where our story leads us and concludes. And 
So the third thing I want us to see here uh, is point number three, uh, a victory unlooked for. A victory unlooked for. Well, the rest of the story does wrap up pretty, pretty neatly. He, you know, Elisha tells the people, follow me, let's go this way. This is where, we, this is where you're going to find the man. And so they, they follow him. He leads them into the very heart of the, uh, of the encampment for the king of Israel. And he leads them before the, uh, before the king. And it's there in that place that he does open up their, open up their eyes once again uh, and to lift the blindness that they had. And it's there that they see the king of Israel, and their doom is surely set before them. Now, once they're there, um, the king of Israel is, he's anxious to, uh, to get to work. I mean, he's had the hosts of the king of Syria delivered to him on a silver platter, and so he repeats himself twice in verse 21. He, he asks Elisha, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Whenever it's repeated, there's this emphasis. He's, he's, he's got them right where he wants them, and he wants to just, you know, put them to the sword, and, um, and move on. He's very anxious for that outcome. But once again, just as in the first instance where we saw um, the angelic host not put these people to death, then once again we see Elisha plead the case for the lives of these people. We don't see them struck down in that moment. But instead he answers this way. He says in verse 22, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those who you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. I mean, if you, if you are hoping for a real cool conflict, um, you are robbed of that now for the, second, for the second time. If you were hoping to see chariots and fire rain down vengeance on these fools, it doesn't happen, and then now, once again, Elisha pleads for mercy for the enemies of God. Elisha says, don't touch them. Give them some bread and some water. Let them regain their strength, you know, their parched, and then send them back to their evil king. All that effort of blinding and opening eyes, all that work, all that miraculous work Elisha was doing, seems as though it's just, it's all for nothing. It's just going to cut, let them go, send them back, um, and send them back on their way. Well, the story even gets a little bit more absurd because the king, under the instruction from Elisha, he, he heeds him, but he, also, but he also doesn't just give them bread and water, oddly enough. Elisha says, hey, take care of their bare necessities. Give them some water and bread, send them back. But in verse 23, we're told that the king of Israel prepares for them a great feast. And only then, when they had eaten and drunk, did he send them away? And they went back to their, to their master. It's a very bizarre turn of events. We have a king here who isn't even particularly close to God, that God is uh, using here to extend mercy. And that mercy that comes from God through Elisha and through this king turns absurd and, and excessive and goes way over the top, and turns into a celebration, a feast. These men had been sent out by the king of Syria to destroy Elisha. They had been trying to destroy the king, and instead they throw a big party for them, uh, and then send them back on their way. Well, if, if you're apart from Christ, 
then the story certainly doesn't make sense. But this kind of gospel turn, this sort of unexpected grace and favor, uh, this, this idea of a king setting a table before his enemies and, uh, and his grace being the thing that motivates a, a, a change, well, that's the kind of story that we just eat up, that we love. Uh, because that's, just, that's the story of our lives. Elisha and the king hold the power of life and death in their, in their hand, um, and yet they open up that hand for God to do, with, to do with them and with their enemies as he will, because if we do acknowledge the fact of the spiritual realities at work and of um, God who is providentially behind the scene, well, then the rise and fall of nations, the success or defeat, um, both on the large scale and when it comes to our individual lives, well, those things truly are all in the palm of God's hand. And for us, people who belong to him, who have been adopted by the blood of Christ, uh, who have had our eyes opened uh, to, to perceive by faith um, spiritual realities, well, for us, that is cause for us to take great courage and to be, um, and to be grateful for. Because we were once those people who were blind to our spiritual condition, who needed this kind of favor and grace because we were no different than this army, enemies of God and of his people. We were those dead in our trespasses and sin, um, those in whom there was no, no good at all. And if you previously thought you sought after God before, well, you only sought him and his people in malice, seeking, their, seeking his and their destruction, full of hatred, uh, hatred and vengeance. But in reality, through all of our raging and all the raging of the nations as well who are opposed to God, all of that enmity towards God in the end of the, or at the end of the day will be revealed as foolish uh, and comical. And in the same way in which, the, in which the Syrian king and his servants were plotting to try and overthrow uh, Israel and trying to get to God's, God's, uh, God's man, Elisha, all of that was for naught. That in the end, it was just, it was just silly. Um, that they really had no, uh, no ability outside of what God allowed um, to wage a warfare against these people. Thanks be to God this morning that we are those who have had our eyes open and blinded to not just our own folly, but that we've had our eyes open to the strength and the magnificence and the might of God, who will in the end set all things right. There is certainly a time for, for judgment. Other Old Testament stories don't go this particular way. At other times, God does tell his people to, you know, to, uh, to, to wipe out pagans and their, false, and their false gods. Yet in this story, we see how God can even achieve his victory by disarming the powers of this world. We see him achieve victory through, uh, through extending grace and being slow to anger and being kind towards others and to um, all those qualities which Jesus describes. And so for us in this time, this story does provide a good paradigm for how we should consider ourselves and how we should consider the way in which we move about the world, and the way in which God ultimately will achieve and does achieve victory, how he has achieved victory through the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. 
And that when we read something, as we read like Revelation 19, which shows a terrible and frightful depiction of Christ returning as, uh, as one who brings vengeance and who will judge the nations. Well, now, at this time, this is the time for us to move about the world like, like Elisha and like the king of Israel in this story, of being quick to love enemies and to forgive them and to call enemies to repentance. Now, that today is the day of salvation, because what the future will bring is a full and just and righteous retribution that, that the world will pay for with its blood. So as we move forward with our lives and as we move forward from this morning, let us be people who are renewed in our commitment uh, to, look to, the, to, to look to the things that are, uh, or, or, or to not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Let us remember, as Paul says, that the things that are seen are what, are, are what is transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let us cry out to God for increased measures of faith, knowing that faith, once again, is the assurance or things hoped for, and that faith includes the conviction of things that are not seen. Let us cry out to God once again this morning to remove that which hinders us uh, from seeing rightly and help and, and ask him to break down all of our dependence and all of our trust and all of our reliance upon what the world considers strength uh, and might. And we see once again afresh this morning as we continue in worship that as we worship Christ, we worship a victorious Savior who won't just conquer on that last day, but already has conquered um, over all worldly powers through his, resurre- through his death upon the cross um, that was vindicated by the resurrection. And may that be our hope and where our assurance lands or lies for us this morning. Let's pray.